Part of a 600-year Polish vodka-making tradition, Belvedere is all-natural and made with 100% non-GMO Polska rye and pristine water. Belvedere has championed Polska rye vodka and superior natural ingredients since its inception, and it continues as their mission with its new Belvedere Single Estate Rye Series. These award-winning vodkas, Smoggery Forest and Lake Bartosek, are two distinct-tasting vodkas born from unique terroir and expert craftsmanship, much like the expert craftsmanship in Vince Carter's game. It takes a special type of dedication to your craft to play as long as he has. Taste the difference and enjoy Belvedere's new single-estate rye vodkas on the rocks or in a delicious cocktail today. Belvedere is a quality choice. Drinking responsibly is too. Welcome into another edition of Winging It, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm your host, Annie Finberg, with my lovely co-host, Kent Bazemore and Vince Carter. Good morning. It is a great morning, and I'm very excited to announce that we are joined by politician, activist, and much, much more, Ambassador Andrew Young. Thank you. Yeah, it's a beautiful morning. It is. It is. The spring looks like it's finally coming. It does. Right. It was a little chilly when I first woke up, but it's actually getting really nice out right now. Yeah. yeah. On top of the fact, it's, it's his born day. It is. It is his birthday. Happy yes, birthday. Happy birthday. Right, yes. yeah. So you awesome. are 87 today. Is that right? 87 years old. Young. Young. 87 years <laughs> young. Young. And I it's tell awesome. you what, I used to think I could play basketball. But when my knees gave out, I, I realized why. Basketball wasn't your thing? Or you couldn't <laughs> no, play anymore? <laughs> no, I realized how much you, you, I, I, I can't even make the ball reach the rim anymore uh-huh. without my knees. Right. Yeah, you got to bend those need knees. Those. Definitely need those. I need those. That's why Shaq can't shoot free throws. <laughs> <laughs> he never could get his knees in the game. Mm. So, Ambassador Young, I want to talk about basketball first. Have okay. you always been a fan of the sport? I have. And, of course, believe it or not, when I was growing up, there were no black people hardly playing basketball, except the Globetrotters. Mm. And there was not a single black player on a major white college. I can remember it was in, during the Second World War, around 1941 or 42, when the Army started sending uh, students into the Navy V-12 program. Hmm. And somehow, I think it was Princeton that ended up with one of the first black players in Ivy League. We didn't play much basketball except around the Globetrotters, and mm-hmm. the Globetrotters really made the game. In fact, I, if you think you old, they call you old. <laughs> <laughs> I bumped into Marcus Haynes in the Dallas airport one day, and Marcus is older than me, huh? I was about 70. He must have been at least 75. And I said, hey, how you doing, Mr. Haynes? What you up to? He said, still doing what I've been doing all my life. I said, you're not still trying to play basketball, are you? (laughs) He said, yep, I don't miss a day. Wow. That's awesome. And I said, you own the team now. He said, I own it, I manage it, and I play. I said, what, you just go in and do your your little dribble thing and then (laughs) come back to the bench? He said, no, I play every minute of the game. Hmm. I said, how many games you all play? He said, we play two or three games a week. Wow. I said, well, how do you do that? He said, well, every day of my life, I run three miles. If I'm not playing basketball, I run three miles. 
He said, it can be raining, it can be snowing, it can be 110 degrees. I'm going to run my three miles. Mm. And he was at least 75. Then. Then. <laughs> Very disciplined there. Mm -hmm. The human body is uh, really a miracle when you take good care of it. I have not taken good care of mine. <laughs> not that I didn't, you know, I didn't try to. Well, we used to play basketball in the civil rights movement. And one of the things I always say that people never know about Martin Luther King is he grew up in the Butler Street YMCA in Atlanta. Okay. And he wasn't but about five, six, but he could shoot steps. with either hand. Oh. And he was very quick. And so he, whenever we'd play pickup games, he'd want to play under the basket <laughs> because nobody realized how fast he could move and, and how quick he could go either way. But he was quite a, a, a solid athlete. Hmm. Uh, for his size. So I can imagine that track was, he was pretty good in track. Well, if he... I was on Howard's track team. We started out running and he was in his suit and slick shoes and I couldn't catch him. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a yes, he was then. He was just a gifted athlete. Whatever you work on, you develop. And he worked every day on he really worked every day trying to figure out how he was going to get black folk and white folk together. Mm -hmm. Basically, we we did a pretty good job of it, considering that uh, we had no money. Uh, he never had more than a half a million dollars a year to work with, and maybe no more than 40, 50 people. The payroll was real lean. Mm -hmm. We paid a volunteer, the young people, who were single got paid $12 a week. Those of us who were running the organization, we got paid $6,000 a year. Mm. <laughs> wow. But it, it, was, it wasn't hard to live then because people would, uh, everywhere you go, people would feed you. Mm -hmm. So hotels were segregated, so they'd give you a place to stay. And uh, you basically had to raise your family on your salary. So before we get more into MLK, I want to know about you uh, when you organized the voter registration drives and you were facing death threats and all that. Why did you decide to continue on with that despite all the death threats and danger behind it? Well, I, I grew up in New Orleans and I grew up in a neighborhood that was so mixed up. They had an Irish grocery store on one corner, an Italian bar on another. The Nazi party headquarters was on the third corner and a Chevrolet dealership around the fourth. <laughs> and there were other black people in the neighborhood, but there were no other black children. So we had to learn to get along and survive. And my daddy was a very wise man. He said, look, he was 5'4". And he said, you're never going to be big. He said, so you can't beat everybody. You need to learn how to box and how to fight so that you, if you know how to fight, you don't have to fight. Mm -hmm. He said, but you just have to use your mind and don't ever get angry. He'd box with me. And if I ever took a wild swing, he'd slap me upside my head. He said, <laughs> see, you lose your temper, you lose your head. Mm -hmm. You got to stay cool and your mind is what will get you through any fight. How many siblings did you have? Just one brother, just one little brother. brother. 
And that was the other thing. See, my my grandmama said, now, if somebody calls you or your little brother nigga and you don't beat them and you don't fight them, I'm going to beat you when you get home. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't, you know, we, we learned to get along in the neighborhood. And, and then, to, but schools were segregated. So we had to go about, it was about three miles away to an all-black school. We were the only ones that had lunch money. <laughs> Everybody else was on free lunch. Mm-hmm. That was another adjustment. And uh, I had to learn how to, how to get along in that group. It was easier, easy because I was younger, too. We, we had a, a church nursery that was at our church that taught me how to read and write before. You learned how to read and write in school. I mean, I, I learned how to read and write and add and subtract before I was six years old. Mm-hmm. When I was six years old, I went to public school. They put me in third grade mm-hmm. where everybody else was, you know, eight to 12. And so being the smallest and the youngest, I had to figure out how to survive. Mm-hmm. And and those were good lessons because the lessons I learned there helped me later on at the UN. I said it was, there was nobody I ran into in Africa or Europe or Asia or anywhere else that was as much a threat to me as the kids I went to school with or in my neighborhood. And and you, you learn to deal with them by by not getting upset, by speaking to them. And so when I got to uh, running voter registration drives, I had dealt with just about every kind of person in the South, including Klansmen. And they were people, too. And I always treated them like people. I spoke to them before they spoke to me. If I knew the name, I called them by name. I found that there were two or three of us that very seldom went to jail or very seldom had any trouble. One was James Bevel, who was born in Mississippi, in Mm -hmm. Itabina, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And he never got arrested unless he wanted to get arrested. Mm -hmm. You talk to the policeman before he asks you something. You greet him. But, you know, you do that with your teachers, too. I never studied. You know, and I, I was smart, but I I wasn't smart at what the teacher wanted me to be smart at. <laughs> <laughs> but I learned that you have to be nice to teachers. You have to speak to teachers, call them by name, sit in the front of the room. Because if I sat in the back of the room, I was sure going to get put out for something. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's it's just the lessons you learn in your early life. I don't know about you, but you you probably have some lessons before you were 10 that made you the man you are now. Of course. Both I mean, of you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's what it's all about, you know, kind of trying to put things in perspective as, as, as often as possible. You know, we get caught in, caught up in what's going on around us and, you know, all the distractions of just everyday life that sometimes we forget to think about, you know, what we've been through and, you know, what the people before us have done and sacrificed to get us where we are today, so... Definitely a lot of things that I've learned growing up and little old Kelford that uh, still apply today. Well, you all do a good job for us here in Atlanta, and we're proud to have you. We appreciate it. In fact, the team is doing good. You're not winning every night, but you're in every game. I was there the other night when you all kind of ran over LeBron. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, it was a good night for us. That was a good night. In fact, you've had some good. The the, the Knicks was a good game, and I, that was just two two points. Mm, yeah, I think that was a one fourteen, one twelve, something. Yeah, like something that. like that. That sounds about and right. You know, you know I, I don't know how you all feel about this, but when you're in the game and you gotta always have a chance to win, and it's always a good game, and uh, I really admire your coach. Mm-hmm. And the whole structure that you all have put together here, and it, it it means something to the city. The support we've been getting all season, you know, despite our record, is is uh, by and large, you know, just the the culprit of you know the type of people we have around mm-hmm. uh, the organization. You know, I've, last year was you know kind of a similar year, but the team wasn't all that you know together, and we mm-hmm. weren't as fun to watch. So. Is definitely see, you know, with a revamped State Farm Arena and a new energy, um, you know, the city of Atlanta is definitely trending up with the sports. You know, you look at Atlanta United, had a, an amazing season last year, winning it all. So I like where things are. You know, I've been for five years now, so uh, it's definitely uh, one of the peak times, you know, for me, uh, you know, just seeing, you know, the people in the city. Shoot, the WNBA team. Our, yep, our, yep, Atlanta Dream. Team, the yeah. Dream that has been... They were so close to yeah. a wonderful opportunity as well as the football well, team is consistent. I, I'm, I, I like sports, and I like almost every sport. And uh, I'm, I, I, I like the game, and I like the way you all play, and I like the way you get along with each other. And the score, the final score is important, but I think everybody that comes out to a game has a good time. Mm-hmm. And your biggest competition might be Kiss Cam. <laughs> <laughs> that and the Chick-fil-A in the fourth quarter. Oh, man. Yeah, those free throws. Yeah. Hang tight. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. Hulu's paying some of the league's best players a lot of money to do some pretty crazy stuff. Joel changed his nickname from The Process to Joel Hulu has live sports MB. Damian Lillard got a tattoo that says Hulu has live sports. Clearly, they really want you to know that Hulu has live sports. Get over 60 live and on-demand channels, tons of shows and movies, and exclusive originals with Hulu. Get rid of your cable and make the switch for only $45 a month. Watch your favorite teams in the biggest games all season with no cable required. Watch on the go and on all your favorite devices. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Learn more at Hulu.com. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, a stack of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash wing it. ZipRecruiter sends your job over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash wing it. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash wing it. W-I-N-G-I-T. ZipRecruiter.com slash wing it. Zip Recruiter, the smartest way to hire. It's time we treated ourselves to a higher quality underwear. 
Underwear that feels good provides support and leave us feeling fresh. Because we deserve better, our boys deserve better. That's what Saks Underwear is all about. It's the only men's underwear specifically designed with our anatomy in mind. Saks Underwear patented ballpark pouch is a game changer with internal mesh panels that keep everything in place. Then there's the super soft, moisture-wicking fabrics that let our boys breathe and even repel B.O. Saks is the underwear that our boys deserve. They fit great under my skinny jeans, and uh, they give me great support. Get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase when you use my promo code WINGING at checkout. To order a few pairs of Saks now with this great offer, go to saxxunderwear.com. That's Saks with two X's, and use the promo code WINGING at checkout. Saxunderwear.com, promo code WINGING. You talked about hate and dealing with all that growing up. I'm curious to know what you think about today NBA players and regular people too are dealing with a lot of hate. You talked about if you lose your if you lose your head, you lose your temper. What's kind of your message to people dealing with that type of stuff today? Well, the challenge it seems to me in basketball is to play like one. I used to kid <laughs> I shouldn't say this, but I used to kid Dominique because the, Dominique never saw a shot that he didn't want to take. <laughs> it didn't matter who was in the basket. Uh, but the way you all move the ball and the way you're learning each other's moves and setting each other up for shots, I mean, that's, that's your experience, both mm-hmm. of you. Uh, but it's also you got to seem you have a good coach. Mm-hmm. And he yeah. always seems to be calm, cool, collected, and... I don't know what he's saying to you on the sideline, but he's saying something that makes you do better. Mm-hmm. And it, it um, and you carry yourself well off the field. And you, you've you had a good reputation. I don't believe you've ever been in trouble. No, I try not to be. I try to stay out of the way. <laughs> well, that was sort of Dean Smith. Where you, yes. you played with Dean yes. Smith in North Carolina. Yeah, that was one of his things, you know. It's, you know, the, the people like Dean Smith and John Wooden and, at UCLA, mm-hmm. and I don't know who the younger ones are now, but uh, your coach, Lloyd Pierce, is becoming one of them. Mm-hmm. Because of his demeanor and his approach made it easy for everyone, whether it was the older veteran guys or the younger guys, to buy into what he was trying to sell to us. And once we bought in, I think that made the transition to, you know, everybody said, oh, we're just a young team. It, it made it easier for the younger guys to kind of grasp his concept or the concept of the league and kind of take off and just play the game instead of kind of worry about the game. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So uh, it's been great. He's allowed us as veterans to kind of stay in the guy's ear as far as just what we see, helping them grow in game and off the, off the court. So it's been, been a fun year. You know, like it's like, like Bay says, our record doesn't show it, but I mean, we're trending upward. Very promising with with the the nucleus of guys we have. Very good. You weren't still the mayor, but I'm assuming you were still in Atlanta when Dominique came to the Hawks. Mm -hmm. How excited were you to see him come through here? Well, we watched Dominique at Georgia. I think my my glory days of the Hawks were way back with Lou Hudson. And, well, Spud Webb was there with... uh, with me, yeah. I mean, I'm to, to have a little guy dunk. <laughs> I could, I could grab the rim, but I could never get the ball through it. 
it's it's a great game. When I moved to New York for a couple of years before I came here to work with Dr. King, and um, just to be able to go out on a playground and uh, and say, "Can I have the winner?" and mm-hmm. pick uh, pick up basketball uh, is the way I kind of stayed in shape most of my life. And uh, yeah, we all, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it, it's something you don't need any. I mean, this is, you have some wonderful facilities here, but we played on red clay. We all did, man. Mm-hmm. Shoes used to be so bad after, like, <laughs> we play on red clay across the street at the park, and, uh, like, you come home, you like, your your hair, like, the hair on your legs is just all filthy. And, and what's mean, the first thing you might say? Leave them shoes leave outside. Leave them shoes outside, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> leave them right outside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I want to know a little bit more about your relationship with Martin Luther King Jr. I, I think I overheard you telling the team once a story about how he always said he thought he would die young. Is that correct? Well, yeah, he said, look, some of us are not going to live to 40. And he said, you're going to die. Everybody's going to die. Dying, death is the ultimate democracy. So he said, everybody's got to die. And you have nothing to say about when you die, where you die, how you die. The only choice you have is what is it you give your life for? Mm-hmm. And you ought to give your life for something that when you die, you will have made a contribution of some sort to whatever you've given your life to. And then he'd be very serious about it. But we would be going, he would usually talk about death when we were going in Birmingham in 1962. There were 60 homes bombed. And Reverend Shuttlesworth Church got bombed three times. Mm. And his house was next door, and his house collapsed on him on the third time. And everybody thought he was gone, and he crawled out uh, and still had his suit, and he was brushing his coat (laughs) off. He said, they can't kill me. I ain't going to die till God wants me to die. But then he came over to us and said, look, we catching hell over here, and we need you to come over and be with us. We have to do something to take on these problems. We can't just wait and be victims. So we went over, and that was when Dr. King said that some of us are not going to make it out of here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we all made it, but the three little girls after it was all over did not make it, four little girls. But that was after we had left, and the demonstrations were over, but he would uh, usually preach your funeral and he'd make you laugh at death. I was fortunate in that I had a grandmother that lost her sight when she was about 80 and she lived till she was about 87. But for seven years between about seven and 14, every day I came home, I had to read the newspaper and the Bible. That was my responsibility. And she was, she'd fuss with God about leaving her here too long. And she was ready to go home. She she had a concept of life after death hmm. that just became a part of me. And so I never I never thought twice about dying. Die, you, you, it's gonna happen. You just as well let it happen on your terms, see, and, uh, I just 
never wanted to get hit by a truck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if it was, it was in in the civil rights movement, and and I don't think there were the one thing that uh, we had was a group of people. Well, Jose Williams, you've heard about, and he was from Savannah. He was he was from down in the country in Georgia, and he put his age up from sixteen to eighteen and went to went to Second World War. He was older than most of us. And he said he volunteered because that was the only place he could go to kill white people. Mm. <laughs> wow. But he got over there and he got kind of integrated, but he was in a foxhole and there was a direct hit. Everybody in that foxhole was killed. Mm -hmm. And when they pulled all the bodies out, he was down on the bottom still alive. And he thought that... Why did God save me? Right. So he was 11 months in a hospital in England, came back to Georgia on crutches, and a hot Georgia day wanted a glass of water. So he went into to the store and bought a cup, but they wouldn't give him a cup of water. They gave him, they made him buy coffee. He rinsed it out because the sign on the water fountain said white only. Mm -hmm. He rinsed it out. And then got him a drink of water. And a group of young white hoodlums came and roughed him up as a 40% a disabled veteran on crutches coming back from the war. And he decided that God had saved him to die for the civil rights in the civil rights movement for his people, not in okay. Germany. Mm. And the uh, only problem with that was he was always trying to get himself killed. <laughs> I said, well, oh, wait a minute. I said, yeah, there's a cross for everybody, but you don't have to go looking for go it. Look for it right? It'll find you when it comes. Mm -hmm. But we had a group of people like that, that, uh, that really, well, first of all, they were really deeply Christian or Jewish. Uh, many of the young white people who came down to be with us were Jewish. And in Mississippi, uh, two of the three young men who were killed, Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney. Schwerner and Goodman were Jewish. Cheney was black. Uh, and um, they knew what the, the risk they were running when, when they came there to be with us. And so looking back, I, I just think that, that uh, people had faith in the power of God to overcome evil. And um, we just never really worried about it. In fact, our wives didn't either. That was an amazing thing. You know, Martin Luther King and Ralph Abernathy and I all married women from the same county in Alabama, Perry County. Most They all went to Lincoln School. But Coretta's house was burned down, Martin's wife, mm -hmm. was burned down when she was 15. She came from choir practice to find our house burned to the ground. And our daddy, who was a sharecropper, knelt down with them and prayed. And the first thing he did was thank God that they were not in the house. And the second thing he prayed for was for the sick people who felt that they had to burn their house down. And then he prayed that uh, they would learn, to, that his children would learn to forgive the people who burned down their house. And that that's the kind of spiritual depth that you don't usually find. My wife was from the same county. And her family had property that they got swindled out of. And her grandfather committed suicide. And her daddy was left with no job because they took all the businesses away. 
So they had been through it themselves as teenagers. And so they never tried to slow us down. They never said, no, don't go there. You might get killed. They said, no, you you better go there. And if you get killed, we'll be all right. <laughs> wow. And I, I think sometimes our children resent that a little bit because they have not had the hard times and the sufferings that uh, their mothers had. Last question, and then we'll wrap up. I want to talk about you being mayor. Is it surreal for you to drive around Atlanta, see things, you know, buildings downtown or the airport and, and know that you are such a big part of all of that? No, I get a thrill. Every now and then I get on on the top of a parking lot deck or something and look around and I say, none of this was here before I got to be there. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't brag much to others, but... But the the thing was, it was miraculous about this. I'd come back from the UN. There was no money in Washington. And so I had figured out, well, I had learned from my work in the UN and my work, I was on the banking committee when I was in Congress. I learned that there was money all over the world not being used. And so we went to places like Holland. Uh, the first term I was mayor, we brought in a billion and a half dollars of Dutch money. It was Dutch pension funds. And um, they built the two Ritz-Carlton hotels. Those were not here. John Portman built the Marriott. All that was my first year as mayor. And we started bringing companies from places where they had money. And we went to Germany and we'd been at war with Germany. But Germany, I had been working in, in the summer with German refugees after the war. I knew they were very productive, disciplined people. And once they got rid of Hitler, the economy took off. So I went over and invited uh, Lufthansa to fly into our airport. And so in one, I, I guess in one six month period, we brought in Lufthansa, Swiss Air, KLM, which is the Dutch airline, and Japan Air. And uh, Japan Air was owned by the Nikko Hotel. So when they had their inaugural flight, I realized that the owner was there. I said, uh, well, just like you are with Tony Rensler, <laughs> I said, look, you need to build a Nikko Hotel here. Mm-hmm. And in six months, they were working on it. It was, it was really just that easy. And what is now the, uh, it's now the Hyatt on uh, Peachtree and Piedmont. That was originally a Nikko hotel for a long time till the Japanese economy went down. But when the Japanese economy went down, the German economy went up even further. And now we have over 3,000 German companies that are here. And that's what keeps us growing. We we became a part of the global economy. And then the Olympics, once we got the Olympics, Everybody knew where Atlanta was. Now, the thing about it that nobody, most people don't focus on is none of that cost the Atlanta taxpayers any money. That was all money that people brought with them. And uh, the Olympics, we didn't use any taxpayer money on the Olympics. Hmm. The airport, we went to Wall Street because Washington was broke and Wall Street's got plenty of money. So learning, I think, to survive, I had to learn to go where the money was. <laughs> right. But I couldn't make any of it myself. Right. So that was, you know, <laughs> like Tom Bradley in Los Angeles said, 
you can bring the Olympics, but you're going to need volunteers to do it without running into debt. And that's going to mean you're going to have to be a volunteer too. If you're going to, we had 150,000 people putting on the Olympics and none of them got paid. And so I couldn't be one of the leaders and not get paid right, right. <laughs> and get paid. I never had any money, but I never, I've always been able to do anything I wanted to do. And the only problem we've had that we haven't been able to solve is traffic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we, we had that solved. And uh, we had a, the perimeter 285 right down the road. We were building another one 30 miles further out that would have sent most of the trucks around the city. And when the Democrats lost and a Republican governor came in, for some reason, he sold all that land that we had collected for the expressway. We had the land and the money. I don't know what happened to the money, but that's, uh, they, they just didn't want the city to grow. They, they wouldn't sign the Affordable Health Care Act. And people need health care. Of course. And uh, you always got an enemy that wants to do something you don't want to do. And, and the, the success of Atlanta is we haven't had enemies. Even when we disagree, we find a way to work as friends. Lester Maddox was supposed to be the worst racist governor we've ever had. But we worked very well with Governor Maddox, and he helped us build MARTA. He was the one who gave Senator Leroy Johnson and uh, others told them to go ahead and form a boxing commission so they could get Muhammad Ali to fight. It's, it's just when, when you want to get along and you have a common interest in getting along, our theme in the Olympics was the world has one dream to play as one team. I think that, that we've been able to do that too. Now we're getting kind of big. It was easier when it was 2 million. Now it's almost 7 million. And, uh, but you got your same 15 folk. And as you get to be one team, y you, you will put everybody in their place too. Because the, the ego battles are, are, are probably the biggest battles. I'm always. That's what I worry about with Falcons. Well, I worry about football. Football, people need the money. They earn the money. They ought to get the money. Mm -hmm. But once the team starts fighting about money, they, it's they're always, in trouble. It's always in trouble. I know we're about to wrap up, but I just want to, you know, you know, I, I feel like I, I'm at liberty. I have to say this. But we, when we talk about history, um, you are history. You know, I, I'm sure you, you know that. And our team got the opportunity when we were in Memphis to kind of tour to Lorraine. I mean, I, I played in Memphis. So I've been there a couple of times. And. You know, I asked a question when the team was here about that moment that day uh, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, your thoughts and your feelings, uh, everyone's feeling at that time. Uh, but I would, I would like you to, to briefly share that with mm -hmm. our listeners because I feel like, you know, it's one thing hearing it on TV. It's another thing reading about it in, in a book or, or anywhere. But, I mean, it's nothing better than the well, person you know, who was there. He wanted to go to Memphis. Nobody wanted him to go to Memphis. But I think he had a premonition that his time had come. And we had, his, his movement was to redeem the soul of America from the triple evils of racism, war, and poverty. Now, we had broken down all the legal barriers for racism. And we had sort of ended the war in Vietnam. And 
he was focusing on poverty. And, and that was more threatening because it wasn't just black people. We had about 23 different poor people's organizations. And about a third of them were white. And about a third of them were Hispanic. And a third of them black. And, well, there are 10 times as many poor white people in America as there are poor black people. I mean, we just outnumber 10 to 1 in almost everything, uh, except basketball. <laughs> right. And... Uh, it uh, and and they gave up on basketball when they come when they decide to come back. We've got some very good. Well, we don't talk about Jerry West very much, and we don't talk about Larry Bird. Larry Bird and Dominique headed out for yeah, long, sure long did. years. Sure and, but the 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 thing is that that uh, he wanted to give his life for all people, all poor people, and he deli- he wasn't supposed to go to Memphis. He was supposed to go to Washington. And at midnight, he said, you know, you all go on to Washington. I'm going to meet you. I'm going down to Memphis to march with the sanitation workers. Mm-hmm. And you've heard the speech he gave. That night, he had a fever. and It was pouring down rain. We didn't want him to come out and get sicker. But there were so many people there. That's a huge that church seats, about 10,000. And there were another 10,000 outside. So we called him and he said, well, I got to show up. So that's when he came with a fever and made that speech. But the next day he was so happy. I mean, he was clowning and he could clown. He, when, when he felt good, he was more like a Richard Pryor. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, he could get just as raunchy and 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 crude and colored as anybody you want to meet. Uh, and he was picking on everybody. And I came in from the court and he said, you know, where you been? And uh, I said, I've been in the court. You didn't call me. You supposed to keep me in form. I said, but I was on the chair. I, I tried to keep you marching. And he picked up a pill and he, you know, whapped me upside my head. <laughs> and, you know, and then everybody, you know, but, they were just like little kids. And then uh, somebody knocked on the door and he said, you all are due for dinner at six o'clock and it's quarter of six. So he said, well, let me go up and get my shirt and tie. He never went out in the evenings with a, without a shirt and tie. And so when he came out of his room and the shot rang out, everybody was happy. And uh, there's a, there was a big old guy on our staff, about six six, and weighed about 300 big football player and I was always boxing with him you know and I was down there boxing with him because he let me hit him <laughs> and I couldn't hurt him right. but and and we heard the shot ring out and I thought it was a firecracker or something until I didn't see him standing where he'd been and when we ran up there it was almost instantaneous I don't think he even heard the shot because it went right through the tip of his chin and severed his spinal cord and I don't think he felt any pain and I don't think he even heard the shot but my first reaction was damn you go into heaven and leave us in hell <laughs> you can't do that to us <laughs> wow. you know and I and that's the way I feel about it but mm-hmm. he he really didn't leave us because none of this stuff would have happened right if he hadn't done what he did of course 
and I, hardly a day goes by when I don't remember something he said that makes me do something today I might not want to do oh, today. Gotcha. See, that's awesome. And because he was a very, very disciplined, serious, and he could be, you know, he could clown and he could play ball and he could could do anything anybody else could do. Great pool shooter. He'd go in a in a, in in pool halls in Chicago, you know, and just clean everybody up because he, you know, he was a gym rat from the Y. But at the same time, he lived by a spiritual reality that that oversees everything we do. I think, and I don't think death separates us from him. And I I think that. Uh, my life certainly has continued to be guided, just like the things that my father told me, the things that I did with him. I know what he would have me do, and uh, I've been around here. He, but he said, you know, some of us might not make it to 40, but if we make it to 40, we can make it to 100. And I'm still around. There are two or three of us. Joe Lowry is 96, and C.T. Vivian is 95, and I'm just 87. And still John young. Lewis is just about seventy-five. So yeah, y'all still young. We we we've been around a long time. We'll be around, God willing, and the creek don't rise. Grandma <laughs> <laughs> used to say that. Well, thank you so much for coming. I know I could listen to these stories all day. I'm sure they could too. But we got to get them off to practice. Thank you for spending your birthday morning with us, and thank you so much for everything that you've done for our country, for the city of Atlanta, for the rest of us. We're all very very grateful for everything you've done. For Vince Carter and Kent Bazemore, we're out. Right. We're out. Five stars, guys. <laughs>